Hi, um, this is Chase Anderson, or Chase, um, one of the child psychiatry fellows at UCSF. Um, one of the questions that came up and I was asked to think about, it's one I think about a lot, is I guess, where will we be in 10 years? I've been following Chase Anderson on Twitter for more than a year now. He's a self-described African-American gay rainbow phoenix psychiatrist, spreading love and justice throughout the world. He's smart. He doesn't shy away from anything. He calls out nonsense and offers hope when he can. And like all good social media citizens, he amplifies the voices of other smart people. So because I follow him, I also follow all of our other guests on today's program. A Latina physiatrist department head in Texas who's been busy this year with COVID rehabilitation and being a mom. A trans pediatrician with an interest in endocrinology, and a third year Ghanaian American med student with a quarter million TikTok followers. They're all part of a moment in medicine. I'm not really sure what to call it. Our shorthand for this podcast has been hashtag MedTwitter, but that's not 100% accurate because they're using all sorts of platforms. I trace it back to the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter demonstrations in the streets across the globe, which coincidentally occurred during the first lockdown of a global pandemic. It created a moment where social media became a lifeline to like-minded people, to allies, to people with better ideas, new ideas, hopes, dreams, among them healthcare professionals, especially young ones, people early in their careers, residents, fellows, med students, what they have in common is that they're speaking up. They're finding a voice and using that voice on social media. And by doing that, they're helping to build community. That's what we're going to talk about today. The affinity groups that have grown up in the past two years, med Twitter, Transmed Twitter, White Coats for Black Lives, Latinas in Medicine, Queer Med Twitter. This is the Hear Me Now podcast. Today, we're talking about how healthcare professionals are using social media to build equity. But first, let's go back to San Francisco and the Johnny Donut Shop on Fulton Street. Dr. Chase Anderson is standing by with a glimpse of the big picture. Where will we be in 10 years? One of the things I really appreciate about this question, I think, is that I'm not often asked about what I dream our future could be. I think we don't ask people what their dreams are enough. I usually get asked about racism and homophobia and being a leader during that and like how to advocate and things. Um, But I think people don't really understand that that's not what I love. Um, That's not what I think my best ability is. It's something I, a lot of minoritized people do because we have to. We didn't ask to do it. We didn't ask to advocate. We didn't ask to be born African-American and experience racism. We didn't ask to be born gay and experience homophobia and be called like the N-word and like homophobic slurs. We just wanted to be people. So I think this is a really great question because we're focused so much on the now and all the horrible things going on. Um, like war in Afghanistan and like leaving people there and 
also inequities inside of America and police brutality, we sometimes forget to think about who we could be um, and who we could be as a society and as a world, because I think we could be doing so much better. That's Chase Anderson. He's a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at UCSF in California. We'll hear more about his hopes for our future a little later in the program. Reardon Ledgerwood is a general pediatrician in Central Texas. I asked them how they identified the moment that's occurring in social media and med Twitter. So I feel with the confluence of events where, you know, the pandemic and, and that's a historic event that is certainly the first for all of us in our lifetimes like this. And then, of course, the murder of George Floyd, helping to something that was already there, just kind of ignite things and kind of everything just sort of made us sort of, like you said, take a have that perspective and take a step back and be like, what are we actually doing and are we doing the right thing and how do we do better? And so it's definitely um, caused a lot of us, me, me certainly, to sort of take a look inside and say, how can I do better? Um, for everyone in my life and for the people that I take care of as patients. I'll give my take as well. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez is Chair of Rehabilitation Medicine at UT Health, San Antonio. The year, I guess a year and a half, has been really difficult for everyone. And it was just almost like micro injury after micro injury after, you know, even macro injury, just things that are all around us and that we're hearing and that we're seeing. And it was a time when we had to be socially isolated. And so I felt that the online communities was a way to connect with people during these difficult times to get our voices heard, to find a supportive community since we couldn't really do it in person. Joelle Burvell is a third-year medical student at Washington State University's Elton S. Floyd College of Medicine. Yeah, for me, being uh, one of the few Black students at my institution, I think you're always searching as a BIPOC individual for other people that are from your communities, especially when things like George Floyd are going on. And maybe your school in particular isn't talking about those issues, seeing how other students at other places are doing it. I think that was a big ramp up um, for me to start using social media more. The things that I saw from my peers, wanting to connect with people where they could talk about these issues when they didn't have a space to do it already. Um, but also being able to, do, to go kind of that extra mile and actually do advocacy around it, not just talk about the issues anymore, but make a change and make a difference and get the education out there. Um, and I think part of the reason why it's happening now is because we are focused more on diversifying our schools. There's now more individuals that in the past never would have been in um, medical school, more first generation students, more African-American students, more um, indigenous students that often weren't there and their stories for the first time are now being heard. And I think people are starting to listen more, which is why these communities are blossoming. And as we talked about, it's coming on the heels of the George Floyd protests and COVID, which disproportionately was impacting underserved communities. All these types of conversations are getting people who are now in the field that traditionally wouldn't have been there um, to share their stories at the table to be able to have a voice and talk about it. And I think that's also kind of adding to this confluence of things that are going on to get people talking. It's a really good point. I, I sense a widening of concern from the health of my patient to the public health, population health. Is that off base or is that part of what's going on here? I definitely think that's what's going on here. I think 
students are now realizing you can't just be, for me at least, be a doctor, right? You have to be someone who understands the social determinants of health and often those come out of understanding public health more and having those conversations. Um, at Elson Floyd, we're a pretty new school. We've only been around for four years. Uh, and so I know they made a huge effort to make sure that we're getting public health classes. And we're talking about um, the issues that aren't necessarily the hard medicine, the anatomies and the pathophysiologies, but the tangentials that still have a huge impact on whether a person can receive care. Um, and we've probably heard this all, but um, a zip code is often a better determinant of a person's health than a genetic code. And I think that's so true, especially in medicine and being able to understand that um, and know how do you actually mitigate that for your patients is important and schools are picking up on that and introducing that more. Right. I think there's an ever-evolving focus in, in medical schools, medical education training to focus not just on, you know, the disease process and sort of think about how did we get here and what are all the other sort of social factors that are affecting this person, affecting this patient that are maybe worsening the disease process or even set them up to be unfortunately afflicted. And so sort of trying to take a person as their whole self and everything around them um, is just giving us a better all overall sort of picture of medicine that I think is something that is getting more emphasis in medical education. I think that you know, pediatricians have done it for a long time. They always advocate for preventative medicine for their kids. And then I think it became a bigger deal with all the, the shootings and then, you know, the whole stay in my lane. This is my lane when physicians kind of said, hey, you know, gun safety, gun laws is part of what we do because we have to take care of those patients and their outcomes. And I think, you know, coming from this level, I know that a medical school has to teach so much information to med students. Just, you know, the knowledge that we know now is even so much more than what we knew when I was in medical school. Plus, we want to teach them advocacy about social determinants of health, about, you know, there's so much to learn. And so, and in smaller periods of time. So it's definitely been a challenge for lots of schools to figure out, like, how do we put this all in to make sure that our learners are engaging in this and becoming um, good stewards of their their education and learning about social determinants of health and um, about other issues related to advocacy and to underserved communities. And also it's something that residency programs are now charged to do. It's part of common program requirements that, you know, you talk about health equity and that you recruit diverse faculty and trainees. More to come. Are any of you hearing about or experiencing any pushback on this sort of thinking, either from attendings or from institutional voices, or or is there is this being welcomed um, universally? So I'll say um, I went back. I was in med school starting in 2014, and all throughout my four years. I was the only, well, I can't say for certain, but I'm pretty certain I was the only open transgender student, and I was certainly the first transgender medical student that they ever had. And that was a very sort of, it was a, definitely a moment of change in sort of LGBTQ 
sort of the world and then particularly with with transgender individuals and so i think at that time there was a lot of people who didn't know anything but were curious and wanted to learn more and support um, and then of course you always have the people who just weren't necessarily ready to go further in their own personal reflection or their learning and then you end up hitting a lot of roadblocks so i can't say it was definitely not universal um, when i was going through med school but it seemed like there was these pockets at least of people that were really trying to do right by me and trying to do right by others i feel like it's very dependent on the topic um there are some topics that people are very open to hearing about there are others that are less open to hearing about and so I think things that have been well received have been disparities in medicine that relate to race. I think that's a big topic right now. Um, and so I use TikTok specifically for a kind of my outreach and my media outreach because it's this beautiful medium of both um, audio and also visual where you can really give a full picture of, the, of how things look like in the medical field. Um, and so I, for example, do a series on um, skin conditions and how different dermatology skin conditions can look on darker skin versus lighter skin. And that one always does really well because people every time say things like, oh, I've, I never learned what this looked like um, in school, in medical school, in nursing school, in PA school on darker skin. This is my first time seeing a picture of eczema on black skin. So first time seeing psoriasis or impetigo. So for me, like those ones do really well. But there's conversations like about critical race theory, which has been going on um, really big um, and can be applied to medicine to talk about systemic racism in medicine. Those kind of conversations are hard, harder to have. And I've heard attendings in passing say things like, this generation is too focused on these issues. We should just get back to the medicine. Um, I think those conversations and those types of thoughts are still out there. And it's a lot about how you package and present the information to people. Um, if you sometimes the buzzwords get too too much, especially in medicine, and people want to kind of shy away from that. But I think if it's presented the right way, we all agree on what we want that outcome to be. Um, but sometimes it's, we have this visceral reaction to something. Um, we feel as if it's being politicized. Um, and I feel like a lot of the things we're trying to do is not supposed to be political. It's supposed to be for equalizing health on all aspects. Joelle, you uh, and your mom and your sister were on our sister storytelling project a couple months ago here and did a really wonderful job of talking about some of the issues of race and the pandemic. And I remember you telling the story of being in a class where I think cyanosis was being talked about and a definition was given that your skin turns blue. And I think you very wonderfully said, I'm pretty sure my skin won't turn blue. Um, as a indication that there was a sort of blindness to uh, issues of race when it came to diagnosing um, skin conditions, for instance. Yep. Yeah, I think those things are just kind of built and ingrained to the system. So being able to recognize and point them out, that's why you need individuals that think differently, look differently, because in that space, I was able to raise my hand and say, hey, what about for black patients? What would you do there? And there's an answer, right? But it's not often the first thing that people will say. Right. Didn't your professor come up to you later and say that's the first time the question's ever been brought up? Yeah, they're like, that's a great question. And then I was actually my one of my friends afterwards came by and said, wow, I never thought about that. If you hadn't asked that, I don't know if I would have experienced, like gotten that information until I got into the clinic, third or fourth year seeing a patient, or maybe an after during residency. Monica, you're um, further along in your career than the other guests. And I'm curious uh, when you're in 
trading secret handshakes with the other attendings? Are you uh, overhearing um, acceptance of this or is there scoffing at uh, the sort of social concerns that are being lived out in social media or in conversation even? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I was going to bring up that no, I'm in different higher level conversations. I lead some diversity committees through my national societies and all the feedback we get is not always good. You know, I'm part of um, leading women uh, communities for our society and we may have had an event and a speaker and you know, some of the, you get the private feedback that comes back. And surprisingly, some people come back with these things that is shocking, like, this isn't true, there's no bias, there's no racism in medicine, this was a terrible talk, you know, so not everyone's an ally, not everyone is doing this good work, believing, you know, what is the truth for a lot of things. and. And then the other thing is some of those people at the top don't hear the information or they're not on social media or they're not engaging in these communities and these conversations. So it's kind of nice. The Center for Medical Societies, they have a group that's working on health equity with a lot of national medical societies right now. So hopefully that education will start there and will, you know, be distributed through a lot of professional societies, so hopefully there'll be more people to listen, but yeah, there's definitely been challenges. Yeah, that's going to be so disheartening to run into that kind of pushback, and yet I think every social advocate I've ever known has had that experience of realizing that power is never given up voluntarily and it gets challenged and there's if you're getting pushback it means you're probably pushing in the right direction and you have to learn sometimes how to tread certain ways with certain people and present data because everyone's you know we all have a science type background so i'm always big about presenting data but then i'm also big on presenting you know personal stories as well so just hoping that i but to not be negative, for the positive part, I love the future of medicine. I love everything I'm seeing. Riordan, Joel, Chase, that keeps me going. Amen. Um, I noticed a tweet that um, Chase retweeted. It begins with a quote, real doctors publish their research in scientific journals, end quote. And the response to that is no, real doctors publish on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Clubhouse, radio, cable news, newspapers, magazines, and wherever the F their patients are. If you know, you know. Bye. Um, There is this notion that you can have a voice that's not peer-reviewed. What do you think about that? You must also recognize the value of peer-reviewed communication, but it doesn't have to be the only way that that health care providers speak. I totally agree. The reason we have so much social media is because it leads to health equity so people can get information to help forward their care and to be empowered in their own care. And I agree. I think that now more and more uh, 
tenure promotions committees are starting to look more broadly at what is considered academic work. And sometimes that is also considered what your social media presence is and what are alternative metrics for research you may have done or for, you know, other articles that you do that may not be on traditional, you know, PubMed IDs that you have. Of course, I do try still to do the traditional publications, but that isn't always taken fair, favorably by some more traditional journals. They may not want to see those kind of pieces out there, be supportive of it, or understand why this is such important work to be discussing to, to put out there. So I think we just need to reach people the real way they're reading it, which isn't always behind a paywall. No, absolutely. Like we have, we are in a world of extreme accessibility and that is so vastly different than 30 years ago before, you know, the internet. So we like, like, as, as we're saying, like our patients are not typically going to be the ones who go to PubMed and, you know, search through whatever's going on. They're going to be listening to their friends on social media. They're going to be trying to find information wherever they can that's accessible. And by us, like trying to be more accessible on social media as physicians, as healthcare professionals, that's sort of what we're saying where we're trying to meet them, meet our patients where they're at. And I definitely, you know, do value peer-reviewed articles because as we all have you know, seen with this pandemic, the data out there is like just on social media is not peer reviewed. And so we got to have to have both essentially. But when it comes to, I guess, the future of, you know, what it means to be a patient, what it means to be a healthcare professional, it's going to be more a sort of a partnership where we sort of share our, our information sources and trying to come up with that partnership versus more the I guess the previous more traditional like, oh, well, I am the holder of the information and this is what I have to give you. So definitely just sort of a shifting in that relationship between healthcare providers and patients. Yeah. And, and jumping in there, I, I think it's so important to really, for lack of a better word, dumb it down in a way. Um, I think we like to, in medicine, just use so much jargon. And like we're saying, there's paywalls that prevent people from getting that information. Um, and I think it's great to have peer-reviewed things, but if no one understands how that relates to them in their everyday life, what's the point, right? If you're getting all this information, all this data that's, that could potentially save lives for patients, but the patients don't actually have it or understand it, it's not doing anyone a service. And just to give an example of that, um, pulse oximeters, uh, I think there was some research over for decades that had been coming out that was showing that pulse oximeters, which are used to measure oxygen saturation levels, don't work as well in black patients. The, the reason why is what happens is you actually overestimate the oxygen saturation level in a black patient. And that's due to just how it was actually designed and not actually taking in the infrared light, um, how the skin color and different things like that. Um, and pa patients never really knew about it, even though research had been coming out. There was a recent New England Journal of Medicine article that came out, I think it was 2019 or 2020, correct me if I'm wrong, somewhere around there, that kind of re-sparked it. Um, I did a TikTok on it, and the amount of people that were in medical careers, but also that were patients that said, uh, I've been using it, and sometimes I feel short of breath, and it doesn't show on the pulse oximeter, was crazy to me. Um, 
And I think that's the type of thing I'm talking about where we have these peer-reviewed research where we, we see that pulse oximeters aren't working well, but if patients don't know or the information is not getting out to doctors or nurses, we're still kind of treating it as this infallible machine when in fact there's bias in who, when we created it, whether we tested it on all different populations, whether all skin types and all different types of people were taken into account. So I think things like that show how important it is for us to, yes, use peer-reviewed research, but to get the information out there so then people can take their health um, into their own hands and make more informed decisions. Let's talk about um, successes. One of the aspects of the, the sort of hashtag affinity grouping that really excites me as a nerd is that these affinity groups then get started and start to have conversations among themselves and then between groups. And I'm curious whether uh, any of you have met in person with groups of people that you probably would not have met with were it not for social media introductions. I feel like I haven't had a chance to meet in person with people yet, which I cannot wait for that to happen. <laughs> um, but I will say one individual that I've been able to talk to via Instagram and things like that um, is Malone McQuende. And he's really awesome. He created a book called Mind the Gap. And the whole purpose of that book is to try and show what black conditions uh, look, black what dermatology conditions look like on black skin. Um, and so he's a student in the UK. And if I hadn't started social media, I never would have met him. And now we work together on different things every so often. And whenever I get a chance, I plug him because he's doing amazing work. Um, recently, he had an interview with Angelina Jolie in Time Magazine about a new uh, about Mind the Gap, but also a new app he's starting called Utano which is gonna try and kind of source uh, patients where they can go in and actually um, put their different skin conditions and hopefully get advice from doctors pretty quickly or be able to reach into a database of conditions on darker skin. So haven't met him in person yet, fingers crossed when COVID allows, Delta's kind of going up again. Um, but when things allow, hoping to meet him in person. I haven't, yeah, also with the pandemic, it's been a little bit challenging. I've met a, a couple of people before before the pandemic and it was really great just to be able to take you know like I'm mostly on Twitter so take their little tweets and then actually you know meet the person behind them um, and so that's been wonderful and honestly like being a part of med Twitter has been amazing for me not just to find you know community but also like to build per like networking and professional relationships like like Chase like Chase you know um, getting to know know him via Twitter and then, you know, getting to do things like this with him and sort of get to know, again, the person behind the tweets has been amazing, as well as just people being like, oh, hey, you know, um, this is this is something interesting. I, I'm not sure if you're interested or or would you, would you mind looking at this and like getting to not just, you know, build his relationship, but also to, to help, you know, pre-meds, help medical students and just overall build this community has been absolutely wonderful and I and I I have honestly really enjoyed and had had a great time on med Twitter I'm gonna say the F word the F word is Facebook so I still use Facebook I know that's not really you know as cool as and yes of course I'm on Twitter and med Twitter and some Instagram but I'm still really engaged on Facebook and one thing that Facebook has is groups and so for a while I've been on, I kind of probably stay on for Facebook groups because there are also affinity groups there that I really am attached to, like women physiatrists. So that's 
women for my specialty. I mean, we've done surveys through there, published on that about what people use this for, how they reach out with each other, how they engage, you know, how they're affected by burnout. Um, we've met in real life. This was, you know, before COVID. We, you know, found groups there to do national presentations. We've empowered each other. We've worked with each other. I also have another group like that is around being a mother and a physician and a runner. And so through that, we before the pandemic, we used to even know each other first online. And then we'd meet at real races across the country when, you know, we'd train in our own city and then meet in person and run races and um, bond that way. And so, you know, there's different Latina groups that I'm a part of. And so it's the other thing it creates is a lot of opportunities. So people get to know who you are, even on social media, and they say like, oh, you talk about health disparities. Oh, you're a brain injury doctor. Oh, you're studying long COVID. Please come get these grand rounds. Please come you know, meet with this group virtually. And so it's also created a lot of opportunities that way. And so I do like doing, even when like pre-med groups ask me to talk, that's one of my favorite things to do because that's the future. Those are the students like hustling, trying to get into medical school. And I am that, you know, you can't be what you can't see. So I want them to see like, here's a Latina, here's someone who may look like you, who has similar backgrounds and who, you know, you too can get through this process, get through med school, become a leader. And also teach them about what PMNR is because uh, almost no one knows what it is. PMNR is uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation, but I had to look it up. I, I really quickly just want to add on to that. Yeah, you can't be what you can't see. And I, like, up until, like, joining, like, social media, like, via, like, med Twitter and whatnot, I thought I was, like, not, not, I knew I wasn't, like, the only, you know, trans physician, but, like, I felt like I was. And, like getting a be a part of like social media and and you know these groups and be like oh oh my gosh there's there's other people like me who like understand sort of you know what I've been through what I'm trying to do with my life and just it's like the the whole world opened up in a sense because I didn't feel like I was you know like going on this path alone anymore I felt like oh there are people who had been there before me there are people behind me and then hopefully you know by me doing my thing, the path will be easier for others. And so just, I don't know, just the brilliance in that. Reardon, I've got to tell you that I, uh, I'm moved by your presence and your um, witness. And I think, you know, what's it like for, you know, the 12 year old kid who's looking, uh, looking at some of the stuff that you tweet and seeing themselves uh, in the future? Uh, that's not only inspiring, I think it's probably life-giving. I mean, I like I love being a pediatrician and like I I love a lot of pediatricians don't like adolescent health, but I really like adolescent health because those are those are people who are, you know, they're trying their best to do their best. And getting to have conversations with some of my gender diverse patients and um, just sort of seeing them sort of see me and be like or see like my my pronoun pin that says they them and like like oh like like again it's that seeing someone who's like them in a role that they never thought was possible like and I've also had parents come to me and it's like oh 
I, I like I'm so grateful to like see a trans physician or a physician who's gender diverse because you know like like my my child's interested in being a doctor but like I never never thought that was something that you know was a possibility or or maybe it would be too much of a struggle for them and so it's definitely been one of the most inspiring parts of my job and being able to to do that in a sort of different sort of way over social media has been wonderful as well. In the time that we've got left, I, I'm curious to hear what you think the future could look like for healthcare professionals moving through the public space, being a voice for change, being a voice for health and using whatever means are necessary to do that, to meet, as you all have said, to meet your patients where they are. What do you think that's gonna look like in the next 10 years? I think we're already starting to kind of see that transition of physicians coming out and um, really taking on social media as an extension of their practice in a way to, I think we all hear that like medicine is a lifelong career and it's vocation and you have to live it. And people um, are using social media as an extension of that to communicate um, the questions that we get kind of asked in our day to day. I'm still a medical student, but <laughs> my parents will ask me medical questions. I'll be like, I don't know the answer, but like I can show you a Twitter or a tweet or a doctor that talks about it, you know? Um, and it, I think it, it helps build that trust between patients and physicians when you have a connection to them um, in a virtual world beyond the doctor's office. Uh, and I think it can expand that trust out as well. And so I'm hoping that as time goes on, especially for those groups that are marginalized, um, individuals like black physicians, which there aren't a lot of black physicians out there, when patients want to see a black physician, being able to connect with them easily or know where they're at and being able to find them online is huge. And that's how most, um, black individuals that I know that want to find a new dermatologist that's black um, will go and look online um, and they'll use an online app or they'll find someone who's tweeting or talking about things. I already have people in my DM saying, when you're a doctor, let me know where you're at so I can come find you. And it's awesome to hear that. But I think we need more people online, more people talking, more people sharing what they do in their day to day um, to A, give patients an understanding of kind of how they can take control of their health. Um, and B, inspire more people into medicine that often don't see themselves there. So I'm hoping that this trend continues of people using creative ways um, on Twitter and Facebook and the, in the, in the groups um, and also on TikTok and these different places to make it creative um, and I guess make medicine in a way uh, more understandable and attainable to people because I think it's a career that can really have barriers and the social media is a way to break down those barriers. I think it's not if you're doing it, but how you're doing it. You know, we more and more people are engaging on social media. We know that the younger generation, even the older generation is, you know, my mom's on Facebook. And so everyone's looking there and they're looking for health information. So we should be doing it and we should be doing it right and putting, you know, honest, truthful information out there. But also I'm hoping it doesn't just become an echo chamber because, you know, people are going to follow who they want to follow, whether that information be credible or not. I think sometimes they just want to hear people who are saying what they believe their own narrative to be. And so that's why I believe that more of us need to be putting our truth out there. So, I mean, I think the pandemic has already sort of opened us up to a certain amount of accessibility with virtual health. And so in some ways health is moving a little bit more out of the offices and into patients' homes. So in a way that's helped us become more accessible. And I think 
that's only going to continue to be the case in the next 10 years. Like the options available to people, um, even so much as like you see different different health services and they just take advantage of uh, like they use virtual health to their benefit and also just being accessible, being more attainable just to be able to ask questions. And so I definitely feel we're, we're moving in that direction already. And then that's just going to become more popular with patients and providers because maybe you don't need to go into the office Monday through Friday to see clinic, you know, every day. And maybe you can do more virtual health and just have just more flexibility just to be able to sort of, again, meet the patients where they're at, but also it's, it's nice for, for healthcare professionals as well, because it offers, again, that flexibility. Let's also meet our patients where they are. If I have patients coming in, well, yes, I have a big post-COVID clinic and they're all they know it's real and they know the, what the effects are and they all want to be vaccinated. But again, I have my usual patients that I still take care of that have had strokes, brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, spasticity. And I take the oppor- every opportunity I can to ask them about what they're doing. Have they been vaccinated? What questions can I answer for them? Can I share my own experiences with them? I speak in their own language. Well, if they speak Spanish or English, not, uh, you know, for the most part, that's what my patients are speaking. And, um, you know, trying to encourage them, even when the visit's nothing about that, usually. Since some may not have access to see me on social media or, or they have information that's wrong. So that's why I want to, when I see them, you know, give them the more scientific, correct information. Monica, Joelle, Reardon, I'm really grateful for you taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Thank so you for much. having us. Yes, thanks. We started this episode in San Francisco, where Chase Anderson is a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at UCSF. We asked him to tell us what he thinks the future could look like for us all. I think about that a lot in case people who follow me on Twitter know this a lot. I think about our future a lot. Um, One of the things I really appreciate about this question, I think, is that I'm not often asked about what I dream our future could be. Um, I think we don't ask people what their dreams are enough. I used to have this vision, and I still do. I just don't talk about it much. Um, We have this world, and it's like made of crystal glass and diamonds, and it's really beautiful, and people are kind. Um, People wake up in the morning, and they're not thinking, like, how do I get somebody today? It's we think about like, how can I make the world a little bit better? How can I make the world better than when I woke up this morning? How can I help other people? Um, We have a much more we mentality than the I mentality. We see that I mentality in America and especially like we see it in medicine too. Of Like, what can I get out of this? What can I do? And I think that's sometimes why I feel like I don't fit in medicine. Um, It's changed and I'm really happy to be at UCSF and I think this is more of our mentality in our cohort. Um, but I wake up um, and I'm with my husband and we get our kids up. Of course, they don't want to get up because it's early in the morning, but we go downstairs and make breakfast together and we meditate. It's something I do now, but I think it would be great if we all meditated a little bit more and we're more self-reflective. 
Um, and then we go to this like crystal monorail that we have and we meet up with all our old friends from college and graduate school and other places. And we ride that monorail into the city and I go and I work in my clinic with my patients um, and we've cured depression, we've cured bipolar disorder, we have cured psychotic illnesses because we actually focus on like how to help other people and how to use our resources for the betterment of all. Um, instead of just like, oh, what can I make out of this? Or what medication can I make that I can make money off of? We've moved beyond money as well. I know that's a really like, that's a lofty goal, but I think we could. Um, I think we could just be people who do the right thing. Um, and so I get to work with patients and it's much more now just therapy. Um, and we just share their stories and we do a lot of narrative therapy where they get to like tell their stories of who they are, who they were, who they want to be. We focus much more on their dreams um, and not the deficits model that we have now where like there's something wrong with you. We need to fix it, which is important. But I think we forget about the strengths that people bring in because they're alive and they got here somehow. So how do we play that up a little bit? Um, and so because people's like mental illnesses are cured in a lot of ways and we like have worked to make a better society where those mental illnesses don't happen for some people in the first place and we have better meds and better therapy, um, like a lot of the kids and I will just we'll go outside and we'll walk around as they talk and it'll just be like calm and we get to see other people along the way and it's just normal conversations about like the better things in life. Um, it's normalized that like people go to therapy and we talk about our feelings and we're reflective as a society. Um, and I think taking us even a little bit further forward, I also like in that 10 year jump, I, it would be beautiful if like we don't have any wars anymore. People have realized we have better things to do. We're healing like our planet. We're healing ourselves. Um, we don't like we figured out how to fix the polar ice caps and we figured out how to like help with the rampant fires that are happening um people are allowed to be people we're allowed to just be ourselves it's such a struggle sometimes for people to be themselves and feel loved for that and it's changing and it's getting better in a lot of ways but we have so many people that are making that progress horrendous um, and so I, I hope that in that 10 year jump, like I get to wear makeup to go to work. I get to like wear eyeshadow. I get to dress however I want, which I do at UCSF right now, but I'm saying in general, this is like a, you know, broad swath kind of thing. Um, and like kids are allowed to wear makeup. Kids are allowed to paint their nails if they're guys or like they're non-binary or they're transgender and nobody cares because it doesn't matter but it's beautiful. And I think in, during that day, like then I take lunch with like my sister who she is the reason I am alive in a lot of ways. Um, and I get to then meet up with my, like I go and work with kids again at our clinic with like Jack Turban, as well as like this other friend that I have from residency where we talked about making a clinic for kids. Um, we were going to call it our, what was it? The Turban Scorche Anderson clinic for sad kids um and it was going to focus on like minority stress and transgender health and like people who live with trauma 
Um, and then as the clinic changed and grew and our society got better, we were just going to rename it to like the dream clinic or something like that. I think that would be really beautiful. At the end of the day, like I go and meet up with my husband and our kids and we get dinner out somewhere and I get to hold my husband's hand and it's beautiful. Um, nobody says anything. Nobody cares. It's literally just people being people. Our kids are safe. And that's all I want for my family is for them to be safe and have the lives they deserve. And in terms of healthcare too, I would want a healthcare system that really meets people where they are. I think we don't right now. And I think we also forget not only people's dreams, but like what they had to do to get where they are. And we don't appreciate those stories enough. So I think we need to start sharing those more and providing spaces, healthcare people to listen to those stories. Um, obviously I'm saying all this is a psychiatrist and I think we need to weave a little bit more of people's actual narratives. People are much more than their disease. Um, people are people and people have stories and they've had lives and they've had to struggle to get where they are and they've had to make sacrifices. So let's figure out how maybe we can build a society where they don't have to make those sacrifices. I think also it would be great if healthcare was just kinder. I think the way we train people is damaging. Um, I personally don't know if I'll ever, I feel, <coughs> sorry, I'm getting emotional. Um, I, well, actually I shouldn't apologize. Feelings are feelings. Um, I feel whole overall, but there are some days where I wake up or some periods where I'm like, people in med school, classmates, other people in administration, in residency took things from you that you may never get back. And even though you're healing and you feel whole, there are pieces of you that, who could you have been if you had had just a supportive environment from the beginning and didn't have to like struggle against all these people and make all these changes and build all these alliances? What could medicine have been like if people were kind and actually the healers that were supposed to be in medicine? Medicine could be really beautiful. Like the program I'm at now, I love. So it shows that it can be done. And I think 10 years in the future, I'd want to like be mentoring med students and they're like, oh, I feel super supported. I wear makeup into the room and no attending says like, why are you doing that? You need to think about your personality. They say like, thank you for expressing yourself because that helps the patients express themselves and feel seen. Um, and I think in the future, I want people to feel seen. I want people to feel loved and I want people to feel heard. And that includes like patients, medical students, residents, fellows, attendings. I think 10 years in the future, what I hope is we've not only healed our world, but we've healed healthcare and made healthcare what it could be. Yeah, and I think that would be really wonderful. And that's what I work towards. That's what I know so many of my colleagues on Twitter and in real life, and okay, Twitter's real life too, um, are working towards. It just is, it's taking a long time and it's hard because we don't have enough people on board. And we don't have enough people who are, maybe feel the same way, actually doing the things that they need to to help us. And I hope in that future that everybody is pitching in um, because it's not just, you can't rely on just a couple people because they will burn out or they will get tired and jaded and we all deserve better. We deserve to be a society that shoulders all of this together. That's how I'm going to pivot my own career a little bit in how I do writings and stuff. A lot of it's been, t been talking about the past and I want to take us into the future. That was my whole goal 
from the beginning. And I just think we could have a beautiful future if we work together a little bit more, um, not only in healthcare, but in our world. And that's my dream and that's my hope. Chase Anderson is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at UCSF in San Francisco. Many thanks to him and all our guests today. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez is Chair of Rehabilitation Medicine at UT Health San Antonio. Reardon Ledgerwood is a general pediatrician in Central Texas. Joelle Brevel is a third-year medical student at Washington State University's Elton Floyd College of Medicine. You'll find links to them all when you head over to our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on Twitter at human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Catherine Gibbs, Carrie Grinstead, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Captain Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.